Chad, I know you're watching right now, and so can we just give Sarah a big hand clap? Oh, we're excited for them, and um, let's, uh, let's pray before we get started. God, we thank you for today, and we thank you for what you're doing within our church, and got to ask that through these community groups, God, that you um, grow us in the Word, grow us in connection and community with each other, and God, and take us into this next season, into through Easter, God, um, just with your guidance um, and through, through us as a people and us as a church, God, thank you for the study of Luke and God for this uh, passage in this section today that Jesus um, unfolds masterfully, but um, calls on every Christian for a commitment that sometimes we forget. So God, help us see this, feel conviction through your word and in response to what you're calling us to. And God, I just pray for Chad and Sarah, and God, just give them uh, grace and peace and rest and recovery, God. And I thank you, Lord, for their family and the growth of their family, God. Bless them and um, be with them, God, and give them a, a confidence that uh, uh, they're in your hands. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Is anybody here a weekend warrior? My only honest people here. Okay, a weekend warrior is someone, and no offense, Wes, uh, a weekend warrior is obviously we know this, someone who uh, will wait long spans of time before they go out and do something rigorous, intense, and difficult. And it's fun, and it's amazing, and you come back and you say, wow, we should do that more often, right? But then the next day, you feel a tremendous amount of pain and suffering, and um, you realize that your uh, endurance and your muscles and your skill level uh, had to play catch up really quickly. And it probably limited you in your ability to be at even the level of what you could be higher, right? Unless you were consistently doing this. I had this when we went dirt biking to dirt. I grew up riding dirt bikes and motorcycles uh, for a good portion of my life. And then Rob said, Ryan, do you want to come dirt biking? And I thought dirt biking was on a track. Uh, that's how I grew up riding dirt bikes for a limited period of time. And then I get on a bike and next thing you know, 30 miles later, I get back <laughs> and these guys don't ride slow. And if they leave you, then you're lost in the desert. So. Uh, out of pure fear, I, uh, I pushed myself to every ability that I had, got back, and I literally couldn't move my hands. I, my back hurt. I hurt for days and days. And I realized, wow, um, I, I could not even do that a second day. There's just no way possible. I didn't have the ability to do that. Basketball is very similar for me where I can always tell when someone's kind of dusting the rust off when they get out and play on the court. They're grabbing jerseys, they're stepping on shoes, they're guarding half court really well, you know, they're not playing offense or defense. And uh, they follow a lot, and, and, and you can just tell, wow, you haven't played in a while. There's something about weekend warring that just means that you're not in game shape. 
And if there's anything that this passage in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is conveying as he's got this crowd of people there and they're intently listening and he's got his disciples listening and wondering, is he talking about us? Have you ever had that in church where you're like, is the pastor talking about me directly? The disciples have a weird moment where they feel like, are you talking about just to us? I mean, what are you talking about? Because he is challenging anyone who is not in game shape. I think that game shape is very, very important for our faith. Jesus stresses it over and over. Paul in the New Testament, one of the apostles who, who really, uh, or uh, I would say, was a champion for the church that we have and we know today, um, was about being in game shape. And there's something about just occasionally dabbling where you're not able to run as fast. You're not as sharp as you want to be. And Jesus is directly going at his followers and saying, I need you in game shape for this. I titled this message, Resolute, Reliant, and Raring. And if I looked at this chapter as you read it, you will see that Jesus essentially has three topics he wants to discuss. One is, are you resolute? Iron, steel about what you believe and how you believe, especially when you're tested. And two, are you reliant on me? Because when you're resolute and you're like, I'm all in, then you will have other things you will have to release in your life or not be so calculated in and take risk. And are you reliant on God? And the last part is, are you raring to go? And he's calling his followers to say, listen, if you are all in and you can trust me and rely on me, but you've got to remain ready. So there's three realities Jesus expects his followers to embrace. And the first one is this is divine accountability. And I'll make sure that these slides will be available and I'll have uh, Christy post them uh, so you can read along with these. But divine accountability is resolute. I know the accountability that I am to have. I know that I will give account one day and I will hold my ground. You're resolute in your decision. I would say this, in this section, Jesus is really talking about the inescapable truth of accountability before God. There's a day when all things will be called into account. I think sometimes we do forget that. I don't think that God called us to live freely, but live completely paralyzed by fear. I think God is saying, there's a day that is coming. And then you will stand before God, and you will be accountable to God. And Jesus says it very clear. Now, contextually, you have to understand this section, because I think it has been mistaught in a lot of ways. So contextually, just remember this. This is what Jesus is talking to, and this is who he's talking to, right? And he is talking about remaining true in this passage that we're going to read in the midst of persecution, when difficult times come. He's not necessarily talking to non-believers here. And actually in any of this section in 12, he's not really talking to non-believers. He's talking to followers. And he's saying, listen, time is going to come and it will be tough. And when you face persecution or difficulty, where are you? And who are you? And what is your resolve? Luke 12, uh, we're going to read section eight through, uh, verses 8 through 12 here. 
And he says this when we're talking about divine accountability and being resolute in our decisions. And, he, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before angels. Now, he's going to tell us who before men is, the context of this. But right now, we're getting, if you acknowledge me before men, then the Son of Man, Jesus, will acknowledge you before the angels of God. But one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Now that's interesting. Because we're going to see him making a separation here. So there are those who speak a word against the Son of Man. I would think that that would be unforgivable. But Jesus is saying something different here. That There are those who go, I'm not sure this Jesus is real. I'm not sure this whole thing is a thing. What is this about this Jesus, this man who lived and died? And so he's saying that there's things that will be said about me, but here's where he gets down to it. And I think this again sticks with the theme of there are those who don't believe. And there's an accountability at the end of their life as well. And he's saying that there are those who don't believe. And maybe if they say something towards Jesus or about Jesus, they will be forgiven. But this is one thing that will not be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. I, I don't know about you, used to grow up thinking, I better never say anything about the Holy Spirit. <laughs> this is not what this is talking about. If you could put yourself in what Jesus is laying out for them, he's putting them in a courtroom type of setting where you will have to testify or where you're on trial. And we'll see where he's laying this out in a second. But blaspheming the Holy Spirit is an impious slander. It's essentially a turning away from God when the time gets difficult. When the pressure to follow God becomes more you're more susceptible and willing to bend the knee to that than you are to God. This becomes blasphemous to God. And it says, it's when they bring you before the synagogue, now here's the context, and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious. That will be a theme all throughout chapter 12. Do not be anxious about how you defend yourself or what you should say. Now verse 12, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour, what you ought to say. And so in this courtroom setting, he's warning his followers that there will be a day because the opposition to Jesus and being a Christian is coming. And who will they belong to in that moment? Will they belong to the pressures of the culture and the setting and even at their life? Or will they belong to Christ? Will they belong to Jesus who died and gave his life for them? And will they also then be willing to die for him? Paul carries this theme in the New Testament very strong. It's better, he says, to die for Christ than live without him. And so here we have this kind of really strong language to Jesus' followers like, Guys, this is coming your way. It's going to happen to me and it will happen to you. Who am I to you then? I think there's something about it because why, why so harsh in that moment? I mean, there's fear of our life. There's fear of losing so much, pressures. 
And Jesus is essentially going, man, you receive this grace and this mercy and this freedom and this light. And in the moment you turn your back on life and you choose the other, it offends God in a, in a strong way. This is a warning I think Jesus is giving not to give up but to trust the Holy Spirit in the process. Meaning this, all the way up into the very moment where you are facing extreme persecution is that trust that in that moment the Holy Spirit will move through you and give you the words to say in that very hour. We can look at the, the we'll, we'll get into it when we get into Acts after Easter where Stephen is one of these apostles and he has a moment where he is facing persecution and ultimately is killed. But in that moment, he looks up and he's full of the Spirit. And in that moment, God works through him. And it's memorialized in Acts. So I think that's what Jesus is talking about. When, when you think about this betrayal in the moment of difficulty, you think about like, I love watching... Um, uh, trials on TV. I love, love, Ann and I love watching these. And there's the mistrials or the wrongful convictions that are very interesting because you're watching this dynamic happen in this dance. But what bothers me the most is when someone is uh, a witness against the person being tried, come to find out wrongfully, but they give a false witness, a false confession. At the moment, because they wanted a deal and they didn't want to be in trouble, they then go against the person. And it's almost like that level of betrayal, I feel like what God is saying in the moment of, wow, you, when the pressure came, you looked out for yourself more than your love for me. Something there, that there's a divine accountability that happens, but we must be resolute in that. I was reading this story about a guy named Mark who was living in Mosul, Iraq, and, and it was just after... Now, just at the beginning of when ISIS was coming through, and he owned a restaurant. And it was interesting because he had this restaurant. He was a, a Christian. And, and, and as ISIS was coming and approaching, the, his uh, Muslim neighbors were saying, listen, you have to convert or they're going to kill you. And he said, well, I'm not converting. I will not convert. I will not leave my belief in Jesus. So they come through. He stayed. And they came through and they destroyed his restaurant. They almost burnt it to the ground. And then he stayed and remained. And he came back and he rebuilt it. And ISIS was coming through again. And they're like, listen, you have to convert or they're going to kill you, Mark. And he said, then they kill me. I will not convert. He ended up getting taken out by, I don't know if it was NATO, but then took him out. And he was upset because he couldn't remain in the place he grew up and lived and had his faith and could be a witness. And they ended up destroying his restaurant again anyways. But I appreciate his resolve that it was, I don't care what happens. I will not turn my back on Christ. We have to examine our lives and we have to ask ourselves, what would cause me to blaspheme the spirit, if you will, turn away what would cause me to leave and say no? I've read so many debates on this. It, it's, it's almost 
uh, nauseating, where some will say, well, for short-term loss for a long-term gain because you can come back and witness more. But I think there's something about this. I think there's something that Jesus is saying, listen, when you face pressure and persecution and struggle, do we turn from the very life that we have and embrace something that wasn't life anymore? God seems to not like that. 2 Corinthians 4.8, which is a great passage to remind us in those moments that we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Meaning this, we look in security to the things that are unseen, not to the things that are seen. And here's why. The things that are seen are transient, meaning they, they come and they go. But the things that are unseen are eternal. I... Uh, Always, uh, I was having a conversation with one of my kids who loves stuff. And he was like, we should get this, we should get this, we should get this. And I always will just have a moment and say, yeah, 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 I get it. Those things are awesome. But five years from now, that will be in a dump. Why sacrifice good that you could be doing for something that will end up in the trash? Even as amazing as we think it is, it's the newest, it's the best. Imagine now if you... When uh, if you went to go buy a TV that was from 2010, you wouldn't even want it. We can't even give those away. They just end up in the trash, but boy, they were so valuable then. We have to have some of an eternal perspective when we're talking about being resolute in our faith and what we believe. Um, if I were to ask you this, and I'd say, would you rather... If you had a chunk of money, would you rather invest in land or would you rather invest in a company stock? The stock would be enticing, especially if it was on the rise. But land does not go away. Land is around. It's not going anywhere. So for a long-term gain, you would, should say, I think, is I'll buy the land. But we don't. A lot of times we want to look to the things that are fast and moving and quick, but they won't be around long. And that's what Jesus is saying. These are transient things. So why put everything into that? Why put our hope and our security? Why would we ever turn away from that when we can hang on to the eternal truth? Look to the things that are unseen. The second thing that Jesus gets into in chapter 12 is this reliance on him. And it would be his divine provision, reliance. So this is almost like a step process he's walking us through in chapter 12. He's saying one is, are you going to be absolutely resolute in your faith? Yes? Good. Because it's going to take then divine provision and reliance on me. I think divine provision provides freedom from distracting entanglements. When you're free and you trust that God has it, then you're free from being swayed away from other entanglements. I never really talk about current events, but I watched this a little bit that related to what we're talking about here that we can probably all see now, which is this really horrific situation going on over in Ukraine. And I was watching them debate on whether they would sanction Russia with this swift banking system, but then Russia 
has providing so much oil to everyone that they wouldn't really necessarily do it at the time. And I was watching this debate, and the countries that were taking the most were holding out the most to really sanction them, which really would stop them. And I thought, oh, you don't ever want to be in that situation where you compromise what is good because you are reliant on something else. And I think in the same way that Jesus is saying, listen, you've got to be all in on me. And if you're all in on me, then you're going to have to trust my provision. And it will come in divine ways. I could, let me just ask the room so we can get a sense of how miraculous God works. Have you ever been in a situation where you were trusting God for his work, remember? Not just so you can have a new car and feel good about yourself. I'm talking about for the work of the kingdom. And you had to trust God and you were just stepping out in faith. And all of a sudden the provision came and it was just through prayer. None of our own hustling. Has anyone ever had that in the moment where you're like, this must be God, raise your hand. Right. So we understand divine provision, and Jesus says you're going to have to live on that. It doesn't mean cancel your 401Ks or stop planning for a future, bringing stability, but it means that when you're doing kingdom work, you will have to take risks. If you're all in, then next thing you will have to do is have divine provision, or be reliant on God. Jesus then talks about this parable. I won't read it, but I'll summarize it. It goes into this parable, and it's of this rich man who, with the hearers, you have to remember, it contextually, when the people who are hearing this are like, rich man, not good, bad, right? And so he's already got people thinking unfavorably about this, but really who Jesus is talking to is the people in the crowd about this parable. Otherwise, he wouldn't share it. And so he's striking at the hearts of the people. He's saying, there's this rich man. And he had all of this money and essentially grain and, 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 and crop. And so in his downtime, because he was growing crop on another field while this one was waiting, he put it on hold and he decided to build a bigger barn because he wanted more. And then he decided to tear that down and build a bigger barn. Now this to everyone was ridiculous. But he thought, I need more for my stuff. And as he made this decision, he says these things uh, for my barns, my wealth, my happiness, my soul, he says. And then Jesus says he didn't realize that his very soul would be required of him that day. He would lose the very thing and nothing, no gain for him. And the point of that parable is that Jesus is pointing out to them that, listen, if you're just going to think that it's going to build up for yourself and, 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 and a life for yourself, and it's going to be all about making sure you're good for the long future. Because he said, I'm going to be able to sit back, I'm going to relax, I'm going to drink, and I'm going to be merry, and I'm going to be happy. And then he dies. It's a sobering principle. And I think a parable for us is that, man, we can plan as far as we want. But when we're in kingdom living, we're going to have to be more reliant on God. More about this is his life. These are his barns. This is his way when you're all in. He's, Jesus is not making this easy for his disciples and his followers. He's not uh, talking about what a great life they're going to have. He's saying that you're going to have to trust me and you're going to freak out. I'm there for you. Do not worry. I was listening 
Uh, I was reading this story about a guy during uh, some of the brush fires from the Santa Ana winds, and it's an interesting story because his brother and him, he was being interviewed by the news, and his house, had big, beautiful home, had been burnt up, and he lost everything, and all he had was a shirt on his back. And he said, well, my brother and I were just, were just talking before this happened um, a few days before. of Like, we really got to make sure that our possessions don't possess us, essentially. We got to make sure. We're, we're a little bit too materialistic. We got to make some changes. And, and then this happens. And then the reporter said, well, how do you feel now? And he said, oh, I'm free now. Wow. What a different perspective. These things don't own me. I'm free. I don't know if he was doing that in his Christian faith, but it's an interesting concept. And Jesus here, when we're going to read this, Luke chapter 12, verse 22 through 31, Jesus is not talking to those who are impoverished and poor. He's talking to those who have some and are striving to have more. And so just remember that when we read these, because sometimes we can get lost in that. And he said, he said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious for your life. Now, when this word in this culture, the way they could describe an anxious person who is just tore up in anxiety about something or worrying so much about something, he, they liken it to a, an infectious itch. Has anybody ever been anxious about something and it's just festering, festering, you just... <laughs> It just feels like you're itching. Have you ever had poison ivy? It's unbelievable. I've had it many times growing up in Michigan, and you just can't stop. Even though you know, if I itch this, it will spread, but we continue to itch because we can't resist it because it's just so gnawing at us. And Jesus is saying, do not be anxious about your life like that. Don't let it rule you. And all you think about is, Worry about what's going to happen in the future. Um, worrying about money and worrying about provision. It's about divine provision. And he says, don't worry, be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, nor what, uh, about your body, or what you will put on for life, meaning in this, in this verse, life meaning real life, like the light and darkness life, is more than food. And more than clothing. And then he gets into this little analogy, which is consider the ravens. They neither sow nor they reap. They neither store they, they neither storehouse nor or, or, or barn. They need neither. And yet God feeds them. And how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to your life? How, how interesting. God uses this bird as a predator that doesn't produce anything and says, even this bird, I provide for it in this ecosystem I've created, and I care so much more about you. Just think of the birds. And then think even more about yourself, about my provision for you. Do not be anxious and do not worry. It's essentially what he needs his believers to embrace is that if you're, if you're resilient, if you're resolute about your faith, then you're going to need to be reliant. And if he'll take care of the birds, he'll take care of you. You cannot worry.
But then he says being anxious about, uh, it can't even add a single hour to your lifespan. It's funny because anxiety does quite the opposite of that. Long studies have shown that anxiety in general will decrease your life by three years by being overly anxious. It does horrendous things to your body. If it puts it into perspective, uh, some of the biggest life shorteners, and one of them is um, um, you have heart disease and even, even diabetes. This is half of that. So this is a, a next in the line of one that will shorten your life is just being anxious. And he says... It can't even add to a single day of your life. How many of us have worried and worried and worried and worried and worried and, and thinking that it's going to help us or that we'll, it will make things better when we just think about it and think about it and think about it and we itch and we scratch about it. It, it does nothing. It actually detracts from your life. As a matter of fact, you can't add one hour of your life. The studies show that you will lose 26,280 hours of your life. There's something about what Jesus is saying that's very wise but it's very much a part of a believer. I love this quote from George Mueller. I'll tell you who he is because it matters. The person who says something, it matters who they are and the weight of what they said. He said, great minister, great pastor in the 1800s. He said, the beginning of anxiety is the end of faith. Ooh. And the beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety. That's a strong statement. I didn't like the statement when I first read it. I was bothered by it, like, mm, that's pretty pretentious, like, you know. But then I really, really dug into his life. George Mueller was a spectacular representation of a believer who lived his life by faith. He was raised in England, in Bristol, and his dad was this prominent lawyer, but a, a full-on alcoholic and a very dysfunctional family. George, one day, is walking down the street. Here's a little meeting going on. They're talking about this Jesus, and he walks over, and then he hears the truth hits him, and he, be, he converts. He then takes his life and commits it all to orphanages. And he then decides, I'm going to start an orphanage, him and his wife, and we're going to start an orphanage and something small. So they brought them into their home. They had seven kids that were prevalent all over the streets being abandoned by their families, especially during this time of extreme alcoholism. And so he starts taking kids in. He started with seven. And he made a commitment that I will never ask for money for the orphanage. God will deliver this. Now, if you work in a nonprofit, not putting out a vision to someone who has means is unheard of. And he said, I will never ask for money. I'll just pray to God because he will make that happen. He remembers a time in his autobiography where he was sitting and he was praying. And they're like, we don't have milk for the girls. And he just said, okay. They got up. They prayed. They said, God, you're going to have to do this. You, want, you wanted this. We're following you. You're going to do it. And then he said it was three consecutive knocks on the door that very next day where it was envelope after envelope with money and they had enough to have food for the whole month. If God so takes care of the ravens, then how much more are you? And I think especially as you're doing the work of the kingdom. He took that little seven girl group and he grew it over his years to 7,000 and in multiple countries. He built so many homes. He built institutions for learning. 
And it literally revolutionized the area and changed people's lives and they put out kids who could be out in society and contribute and be a part and have their own life and family. He never asked for one dime. He only prayed. And that's the journey of his life. In his obituary, essentially, that's who he was, a man of faith. So when he says, the beginning of anxiety is the end of faith, I go, wow. And the beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety. Verse 26, it says, if then you are not able to do this small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? If you can't even add to one hour of your life, why be so anxious about everything else? Consider the lilies. Here's another example Jesus gives. How do, you, how do they grow? Neither they toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory, the people came from all around the world to see was not arrayed like one of these. So he says Solomon wasn't even as good or as beautiful as a flower. And God clothes them. But God is, if God so clothes the grass, which lives in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven or done, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Now this is what the whole thing is about. Where's your faith? Listen, we, we get worried about these things. We, 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 we worry a lot. And Jesus is saying, do not worry. I've got you. You've got to be on his mission in his way and his provision. That's how we know that we're doing God's work. Uh, I will say this. It goes on in 29. And uh, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. Your father knows what you need and knows that you need them. Instead, meaning change course, meaning on the other hand, seek his kingdom and these things will be added unto you. Jesus is doing this shift of let's not get outwardly focused, let's get inwardly focused and kingdom focused. These things doesn't mean God is going to starve you or you're going to be running around in rags. It means that God needs our perspective and our focus to shift. All those things will be added unto you. There's a Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard, and he's the one, if you've ever used the term, you have to take a leap of faith. He's the one who coined that term. He's used it as a metaphor, and he talked about faith. His philosophy was that reason and science and anything around you could not convince you to have faith. Faith is something unique outside the world, and that's why he would say it's a leap of faith. We have to have faith. In divine provision. And the very last thing that Jesus gets into in this chapter is to remain awake. So if you're resolute in your belief and nothing can deter you and you are reliant on God, then you must remain awake. You must remain ready, raring to go. You got to stay in tune with God. You got to remain bright and you do not check out. That's the context of this parable he's going to share. Now this is a dual parable and when you read it you're hearing another one weave itself in but it, it, it's all just brilliant which is stay dressed for action he says in verse 35. And keep your lamps burning. Stay dressed and keep your lamps burning. It's almost mili like militarily in a way of like listen be on guard be ready because the enemy could come at any time. It's that type of thinking. Stay dressed 
for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. Now, this is what we're talking about. Essentially, Christ is coming back. And are we ready? It says, so that you may open the door to him at once when he comes and he knocks. Are we ready? So you're absolutely resolute about what you believe. You would die for your faith. And you're reliant on Christ and in the work of his kingdom. And you're trusting that he's going to add those things, but his kingdom comes first. And then, are you ready? Or are we asleep at the wheel? Are we weekend warrioring it? Are we just occasionally? Or are we ready, battle-hardened, ready to go? Revelation 16, 5 says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Jesus, these are Jesus' words. Blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on that he may not go out about naked and be seen exposed. So God comes back. What he's saying is, be ready, lamp lit, not asleep at the wheel. Just into your own life, doing your own thing. And it was a good moment you have with God, but you've drifted because you're like, I don't really need to stay that prepared and ready. I don't need to be that active. Occasionally, weekend worrying is fine. And then God comes, Jesus comes, and we are exposed. He's going to return at an appointed time, the Bible says. He will come and make all things right and new. And I guess the question we have to ask ourselves, who do you want to be in that moment? Naked and exposed? ready and with the lights on I'll finish up with this we have to ask are we dressed there's the light on are we waiting are we raring to go verse 37 blessed are those servants whom, whom the master finds awake when he comes truly I say to you he will dress himself for service and he will have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them wow what a switch Christ will come and serve you when he finds you awake, ready to go. You've been doing his work. Verse 8, if he comes at the second watch or even in the third and finds them awake, blessed are they. This was a, a, a Jewish and, and Greek uh, uh, way of watch. They did it in thirds. Romans did it in fourths. But essentially, that's what he means. It, it, this isn't about time periods. This is about even at the moment, someone is at watch and ready to go and blessed are those servants. But, oof, these are always good when Jesus says this and important to remember. But know this, that if the master of the house had not, uh, had not known what hour the thief was coming, this is where the parable morphs, of what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left the home to be broken into. Meaning this, this is where it shifts. If you knew that Christ was coming, you wouldn't have turned the lights out. And you wouldn't have gone to sleep. You would have remained ready if you knew that he was going to return. And this is that challenge that is this. If you knew Jesus, if you had inside secret intel that you got somehow, which no one will ever get, the Bible says, but somehow that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would your life look like from the moment you walked out this door? Who are you calling? How are you going to live this last 15, 16 hours. 
And he's essentially saying this, if you knew he was coming, you wouldn't have left in the first place. And Jesus is saying, I'm coming. We must be ready. We must be active. We must be engaged. We do not play games with this, is what he's essentially saying. Verse 40, and it finishes up, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This isn't to produce fear. This is to produce perspective and reorienting our life. And so if we say that we're resilient or we have resolve about our faith and we're ironclad, willing to die for it, and we say that I trust God for his provision, and then we fall asleep at the wheel, it's not the look that Jesus is going for here. And so this is what would be considered some of the hardest sayings of Jesus, by the way. When you look them up, there's a bunch of them, and these are at the top of the list. These are difficult sayings of Jesus, chapter 12. This is when he's getting his troops together, if you will, and he's speaking directly at them. He's like, I need you, and I need you all in, and you're going to have to trust me, and you cannot slack off. These are hard words and a good reminder for us as a church, and each one is an individual. But in closing, I would say this, and maybe we can ask these questions of ourselves, is are we resolute in our faith and commitment regardless? Are we? What would pull you away? What would make you bend the knee to something else other than Christ? You have to ask these questions. And ask God to help you overcome that. Because that moment could come. Are we resilient on God's provision for kingdom work so we can be free to take risk? That we're not so bound by things that we, when, an op, when God's speaking us to go somewhere or do something or be able to give in some way or to engage in a way, we go, I'm bound by all these things and I just can't. Are we free from that? Or do we go, God, I'm going to have to trust you in this. I'm going to step out in faith. And are we raring to go or are we asleep in the job, on the job? I hope that not one believer here is asleep on the job. It, but it's serious. Like Jesus is saying, like, we've got to keep our hand to the plow. We've got to keep going. We can't look back. We've got to move forward. And this is like this pep talk he's giving to his followers of like, if you're going to follow me, it's going to have to have these three things. I want for our church this to be the mindset of our church because this is the mindset of kingdom people, those three things. Are you resolute in your faith? Are you resilient or, or reliant? And are you raring to go? This is what Jesus asked of his followers. And this is what chapter 12 is speaking of. No more weekend worrying we got to be awake on the job, ready to go, trusting God, and take risk. That's faith. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you. God, even though these are words that are, I think are hard for anyone who might be even a little too comfortable, God, who might be um, out of practice, or God, that we might not have this full vision and perspective of the kingdom, but God, help us have that eternal perspective that these things in this world is transient, although it's a gift you've given us, God, and you want us to be happy and you want us to enjoy this world. But we need to put your kingdom first, and all of these things will be added unto us. And God, that we, in the moment of struggle or difficulty or trial, God, that we, we have the strength to not turn away from you, but we lean into you 
That in that moment, in those moments, God, you will work through us like you say the Spirit will do. And God, at the very end, God, that not one of us leave the lights out. That we are ready to go, burning bright, clothed in action. So our master, God, you, can say, well done, good and faithful servant. God, I pray that for every single person here, that we walk out and we think these things over, we mull them over, and God, that your spirit does the work to enlighten our life, our heart, our spirit to these spiritual truths and realities, that we would be a people for you, relentless in action. The world is, is, is needing us to be that way, God, and you called us. So God, let us answer the call in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you guys stand with me at this last song?